Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show, sponsored by Sunbury Press, publisher of books under nine different imprints in a variety of categories, available worldwide wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder of Sunbury Press, and today we have author Barbara Mancini, who wrote Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath. I'll tell you a little bit about that book and about Barbara, and then we'll get into our interview. 93-year-old Joseph Yorshaw knew his end was near and had carefully planned so that he would have a peaceful and dignified death. He completed an advance directive, appointed his daughter, Barbara Mancini, as his health care proxy and enrolled in home hospice care. He made it clear he wanted to die at home, not at a hospital. But it was not to be. A simple act of compassion on Barbara's part led to her father led her father to a medically intensive, horribly painful death in the hospital and left her an accused felon facing 10 years in prison for allegedly assisting a suicide. Barbara fought back in a case that consumed a year, cost $100,000, and drew national media attention. Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath is a compelling memoir about this injustice. Barbara Mancini graduated from Penn State University and Widener University with degrees in nursing. She has worked in emergency nursing for over three decades. In 2013, she was arrested and prosecuted in Pennsylvania on the charge of aiding the attempted suicide of her dying 93-year-old father after handing him his prescribed morphine five days before his death. A hospice nurse and police ignored his written advance directives and he was then hospitalized and treated in defiance of his end-of-life wishes. Barbara's prosecution lasted a year, during which time it garnered national and global attention, and it was roundly criticized throughout the media. Barbara's now an advocate for end-of-life care and works as a paralegal in the Montgomery County Public Defender's Office. She lives in Philadelphia, and she's joining us today. Welcome, Barbara. Glad to have Thank you, you on. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you, Lawrence. It's, it's good to be here. Well... This is some pretty heavy stuff, and as I as I read that again and was thinking about it, I have to ask you first, tell us a little bit about your father. He sounded like a remarkable fellow. Well, I think he was. Uh, he was one of 12 children born into a family of Eastern European immigrants, and they lived in the Schuylkill County, the coal regions of Pennsylvania. He was a decorated World War II veteran. He survived the Battle of the Bulge, and after the war, he worked hard to establish his own business. My dad was a contractor. Uh, he did heavy excavation work. And he was really talented. He could build anything and he could fix anything. And he lived a pretty long life. I mean, even at the age of 90, he was still climbing ladders to fix the roof. But he also had some really serious medical problems. He had been diabetic for years and he had a stroke at one time and he had uh, extensive cardiovascular disease. So he and I had multiple discussions about his end-of-life wishes. He had made a living will. 
Uh, he appointed me his health care power of attorney. It was really important to him to have his wishes and values respected. And uh, by the time he was 92 years old, he was failing and he was terminally ill. He was no longer able to do the things that gave his life pleasure and meaning, and he couldn't be active anymore, and that bothered him tremendously. So at that point, he enrolled in home hospice care. Now, how aware was he of his predicament in the end? Well, here's what happened that day. Um, This was February uh, 7th in 2013. I live in Philadelphia, and I was going back and forth to my parents' home in Pottsville to help out with his care. And the day before, he had fallen, and he was in terrible pain. And I drove up uh, the morning of February 7th, and when I got there, my dad asked me to hand him his pain medicine. He was prescribed uh, liquid morphine. It was in a one-ounce vial. And I handed it to him, and he opened the vial, and I was ready to measure out the dose. But he gulped down what was left in the vial before I could do that. I, I didn't know how much morphine was left in the vial, but I thought it could have been a fairly large dose. And a hospice nurse arrived two hours later, and I told her what happened. My father was not unconscious. He was breathing normally. He was able to answer questions, and he was able to follow commands. But at that point, uh, the hospice nurse demanded that we send my father to the hospital for treatment of an overdose. Now, I resisted that because my father made clear to everyone that he did not want to go to a hospital at any point. He wanted to die at home. And because I resisted that, the hospice called 911, and then police showed up, showed up at the house, and then paramedics did. And the police commanded that my father be taken to the hospital against his wishes, and they arrested me then and there in the house and charged me with aiding and attempted suicide. And that was the beginning of this absolutely horrific ordeal, for, not only for my dad but for me. And what happened then is my father was sent to the hospital, and he suffered through five days of unwanted and painful medical treatment before he ultimately died of pneumonia. And I will say here that he actually received more morphine in the hospital. But after he died, uh, my prosecution, the, the wheels started turning, and... You know, I was placed on unpaid leave from my job, and it took a whole year. And ultimately, a judge dismissed the case against me, saying it had no merit. But it was uh, absolutely devastating on so many levels. Wow. Uh, You know, forgive me. I know we published your book. I know a lot about your book, but... You and I have not had a conversation like this about it, and and I am stunned by the story, hearing it from you and the way you tell it about those events. Uh, you know, it, uh, the first question that comes to mind is, and, and a thousand questions come to mind, and we don't have time to ask them all, but what is the value of an advanced directive? How legally binding is that? I mean, if, if that all just was thrown away and some uh, some other nurse, and you're a nurse as well, 
why would her judgment trump yours? And so maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit from the legal perspective. If I'm a, uh, an older person, and hopefully someday we'll be a really old person and we'll be making a decision like this, uh, or maybe I'll have to deal with that in my own family, that advanced directive, how binding is it? Because it doesn't sound like it means anything. Well, and that's a very good point that you brought up. I mean, first of all, most Americans don't prepare advanced directives. They don't even have the conversations about their end-of-life wishes, which is a big problem. So, you know, we were kind of in the minority that we even had those conversations and went ahead and prepared this legal document. You know, it's supposed to be honored, but there's no law that binds people to honoring that. There's no legal penalties if people disregard it. You can sue in a civil court, um, and, of course, that's a long and expensive process. But healthcare providers are allowed to ignore advanced directives if they have a moral objection or it, it, it somehow uh, goes against their deeply held beliefs. So you may assume that if you have an advanced directive that you're protected and your wishes will be honored, and that's just a flawed assumption to make. Now, there is a, another type of advanced care planning document called a POLST form, P-O-L-S-T. It's been available in Pennsylvania since 2011. I had no idea that it even existed when this went on with my father. But it, it's interesting, just a few days ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, a study was published that showed that even that people with terminal illnesses who were elderly who had POLST forms, they were ignored I think about 34% of the time, and these people who wanted no life-prolonging treatment ended up in intensive care units, on ventilators, getting all kinds of aggressive life-prolonging treatment. So you might assume that taking these steps will protect you, and I think many times they do, but it's no guarantee. And that was really shocking for me to find out, too. I thought I, I knew enough about this as a nurse, but there was a lot I didn't know. And I learned through this whole process that you cannot assume that anyone who's a healthcare provider knows any of this. So this, this is just bizarre because it seems like our whole healthcare system is set up to have exceptions and you know uh, deductibles and copays and you know things aren't that aren't covered and here we have somebody who's saying I don't want any care. I just want to be, com- you know, I want to have comfort when I pass away. I don't want you to take extreme measures or something like that. I'm assuming your your father's directive is probably something like that. Yes. But let let yeah, let's say there's a minimalist amount of care, a minimal amount of care that 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 I'm going to ask for and just make me comfortable, let me die. Don't try to extend my life an extra day just just for the sake of keeping me breathing. Uh, yet <laughs> here you have the system when you hit end of life that that period that sometimes might be a few seconds, might be many months, might be years. It, it's like the whole thing is a mess. And that you actually have more rights after you're dead and your will is probably more enforceable than this directive. Is that true? Well, I'm not an attorney, so I can't answer uh, that part about uh, you know a regular will. But, I mean, you certainly hit on a good point. Uh, some people do feel like, oh, it's a financial thing that, you know, the healthcare system wants to milk everything they can out of people who are dying. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but there's a number of factors that can undermine anybody's end-of-life planning. 
First one is that our healthcare systems are programmed to, quote, save lives. You know, death is the enemy. So, you know, that's, that's just how the system is, is programmed to go. And then another thing that can undermine your end-of-life planning is there are people out there who disagree with what your values and wishes may be, and they may hold positions of power that allow them to override your, your planning or to disregard them. So these could be relatives, they could be healthcare providers, or they could be some kind of government entity. Like in my case, it was the police who did that. There's a, another factor that can undermine your planning, and that's incompetent or inadequate hospice care. One of the biggest regrets that I have was not doing more to research hospice care. I just assumed that they would do what they were supposed to do, and that's a very flawed assumption to make. And, you know, going through this process, uh, this whole uh, ordeal, I did a deep dive into researching hospice care, and I can tell you that the incompetence of the care that my father received was not uncommon. I am not sitting here saying that all hospices are incompetent. What I am saying is that people have to do due diligence in choosing a hospice. You have to do it as carefully as you choose your own doctor. And then there's one more element to this, and this is really important, is the politics that surround when and how we're allowed to die. You know, your end-of-life choices are as much of a political minefield as stuff surrounding reproductive choices. There are very powerful groups that have inserted themselves into what should be very private and personal decisions. So, you know, all those things impact what ultimately happens at your end of life. And it was a very rude awakening. And, you know, doing my research, not only for the book, but I... I uh, I spent a lot of time doing speaking events. I felt compelled to speak out about what happened to me. And it was pretty shocking what I found. And most people aren't aware of this because most of us don't even want to talk about dying or the end of life. And it's really important for people to know this. You have to be an informed healthcare consumer if you want to have the best outcomes, whether it's while you're alive or you're the end of your life. And that's what I'm trying to do in writing the book. Yeah, no, that, that's wonderful. I was just reflecting about um, situations in my own experience, and my mother-in-law passed away some years ago, and she went through hospice care, but she had been a hospice nurse herself in that same agency, and she had just wonderful care from from her agency that she had been working through. So that's probably that's not even close to what what you've experienced. Um, I had a prior marriage and. My mother-in-law was also a nurse, and uh, she was in a visiting nurse program. And you know, so I heard from time to time just discussions about nursing and about the medical profession, and there, and also through other interactions over the years with people and other families going through that. And there always seemed to be sort of this this uh, unwritten rule about death and dying that you really did try to honor that person's wishes and. If someone was in pain, that that things would be that they would be helped with with painkillers, that kind of thing, um, to make them comfortable. That um, it, it just didn't seem like, in my experience, that somebody would kind of break that 
almost like that unwritten code that you don't mess with the family and their wishes or you, you don't uh, disrupt that person uh, at this point in their, in the, at the end of their life. This particular hospice nurse, though, that, that you ran into seemed to really be at odds with you. And I'm, I'm just curious how you as a nurse could be overruled by another nurse when it's your father. Was it because they thought you might be biased or they thought something nefarious was going on? I can't conjecture on what this nurse was thinking. I mean, I, I'm not a mind reader. And she she took an action by calling 911 that then allowed the police to overrule. I mean, she herself didn't have the uh, authority to to um, make all these decisions on her own. She called in law enforcement. And once law enforcement gets involved, it's completely out of your control. And you also have to remember that none of us knows what the underlying philosophies or moral beliefs are of the people who are providing uh, nursing care or health care to you. You don't know what they are. So you don't know if they agree with what your decisions are. Um, You hope that they would honor that person's decisions, but uh, things happen. I mean, all you have to do is talk to people who work in nursing homes. You see people with advanced directives that still end up getting CPR. Uh, You see it in hospitals all the time. Many times they are not honored, and whether it's because they don't have it right in front of them or because it's just easier to go ahead and do the life-prolonging care, it's hard to say. But you just cannot make the assumption um, that because you've taken these steps that they will be honored. uh, So you say you were were arrested that day? Right right after it happened, right in the house. On the spot. on the Did spot. So no investigation was even done before my arrest. The this police officer made a snap judgment, and that started this ball rolling that snowballed into a, a nightmare. Well, I'm hoping you were given bail and you're allowed to see your father before he passed. Well, I, I was uh, assessed $100,000 in unsecured bail. Unsecured means you don't have to put any money up immediately. But if you don't follow the bail conditions, then you owe that money. So, it, you know, I, I wasn't put behind bars. I was not allowed to see my father until later that night when there was someone posted in the room at all times. Wow. And uh, it, it, it was, I, I mean, it was heartbreaking to see what was done to him. And, and, you know, at one point during his hospitalization, his hands were restrained I mean, he had things done to him that he was absolutely adamant he never wanted done. And it was just heartbreaking. And I felt like I failed him. Uh, yeah. Well, by you yeah. being able to tell the story, hopefully there's a, there's a message here that will help others to make better decisions and be in the better situations I mean, here we have a World War II veteran who went through the Battle of the Bulge. He should have been treated with the utmost respect. He could have given his life for the country in a in a heartbeat, of, you know, a straight bullet, uh, you know, just some bad luck, and he wouldn't have been with us. Maybe you wouldn't even be with us today. So, yeah, uh, and uh, I think those, the veterans being treated that way. 
yeah, he got the respect he deserved after he died, he, you know. Mm-hmm. But before he died, he didn't get it. And another problem with uh, situations like this is that the way the law is written, and this is in nearly every state, most laws that criminalize aiding a suicide don't make any distinction between the wish of a dying person to have a comfortable and peaceful end on their own terms versus a medical, a mental health crisis that would lead to a premature death in suicide. Right. There's no distinction there. And these laws are vaguely worded, so it allows police and prosecutors to interpret it in a very, very broad way. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with speaking out about this and writing a book is to encourage people to advocate for changes in the law so that this doesn't help happen to other people. Um, certainly, because our culture is so disturbed by the concept of death, we don't like to think about dying, we don't like talking about it. Until the law is amended, other people are certainly going to be at risk for an ordeal like the one that my family endured. And my case really raises a lot of issues about what family members or caregivers face when taking care of a loved one at the end of life because it's really a scary prospect to know that the decisions you make can be judged critically through the lens of a prosecutor. And certainly I'm not the only one who's ever been prosecuted under this law. There are other cases that I, I talk about in the book. Some of them are really egregious. And uh, no, it's not something that happens every day, we're all going to die, and everyone's at risk for this happening to them, too. So you went through a year of trying to rectify the situation, being accused of assisted suicide, attempted murder. I'm not sure what the charge would have been. But uh, what, what did this do to your nursing career? Well, the charge wasn't attempted murder, although some media accounts incorrectly said that. The charge was aiding attempted suicide. And in Pennsylvania, that's a second-degree felony. It can get you 10 years in prison. Uh, I lost my job. I was placed on unpaid leave until the outcome of the case. And uh, so that was a whole year. And uh, after the judge dismissed my case, I mean, and it, I have to say I give Judge Jacqueline Russell a lot of credit. She wrote a a 46-page uh, opinion, and she really trashed the hospice, the police, and the prosecutors for the actions she, they took in this whole thing. She was very, very critical of them. So after my case was dismissed, the hospital where I worked immediately offered me my job back. I uh, I didn't take them up on it at first because – I had to wait till the appeals process worked its way through. We weren't sure if the prosecutor, who at the time was Kathleen Kane, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. They know more. (laughs) Yes, Kathleen Kane, who herself ended up uh, being convicted of crimes unrelated to my case and actually served time in jail. But she was the prosecutor, and we weren't sure if she was going to appeal the dismissal of my case up to a, a superior court. Uh, Within a matter of days, she released a public statement saying that there was no chance of them winning on appeal, so they just let it go. But I actually didn't return to work for a few months because I 
I couldn't walk into my workplace without breaking down. And I, was, yeah. I received tremendous, tremendous support from all of my coworkers, you know, from neighbors, family members. Unlike so many people who are charged with crimes, I had huge, huge advantages. You know, I'm white. I'm educated. I'm middle class. I didn't have to sit in jail before my preliminary hearing and that kind of thing. And I had a lot of public support, even from uh, opinion writers. And it still was devastating. I still couldn't return to work right away. I, I had to go through counseling. And the, the therapist said I had PTSD. And so it, I had to do that process before I could even step back into my role as a nurse. Yeah. Now, were you finally able to say goodbye to your father in, in your own way, in your own mind after oh, all it, this? It took me a good two years before I could even grieve about it. I just, yeah. I couldn't do it. I I locked that away, but I, I will yeah. say this, um, it, it's still a, a deep wound, not only for me, yeah, but for my family, you know. I would think that the way that the whirlwind of what happened, all that had to be pushed away and set aside and, you know, you're not sure what to focus on. And yeah, it must've been quite, quite an ordeal. Well, I, uh, I would say I, I lived in a chronic state of disbelief <laughs> that, that I just <laughs> it didn't seem like this was possible. And I, I, you know, you're a bookseller, you, you sell a lot of fiction. And I thought to myself, I could not have possibly dreamed up if it, a fictitious story that would follow this kind of scenario. It just seemed unimaginable yeah. to me, but it really happened. It's another case where truth is stranger than fiction. Yes. <laughs> well, Bar- Barbara, we just have a couple minutes to go here. Maybe you could just tell us what you're what you're up to these days, what you're working on now, what you're advocating. Well, I after I returned to my nursing career and I started doing a lot of speaking in various places throughout the country and I also became interested in criminal justice advocacy. So I received a paralegal certificate and I worked for over a year with the Montgomery County Public Defender's Office because I really care about that too. Having an insider's view of what it's like, I could see there's inequities everywhere throughout the criminal justice system. So I have a dual advocacy role now for end-of-life, uh, improved end-of-life care and end-of-life choice, and also to help improve uh, fairness in our criminal justice system. So I, I've started a blog, and I'm doing speaking events in various places, and obviously, hopefully, getting more people to read the book, because I think uh, if they read the book, it will have a profound effect on them and how they view both of these things. Well, Barbara, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for persevering through all that difficulty. And thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We've been talking to Barbara Mancini, the author of Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network.